Welcome to From the Ground Up with Mark Weller. I'm Matt Rienzo. Today we have a very special guest and co-host filling in for Mark Weller today, a partner at Weller Development Company, my colleague and, and good friend as well, Steve Siegel. Welcome. How are you doing? Great. Great. Thank you, Matt. This is uh, going to be fun having you on for a few episodes. Uh, we're going to get into some really good stuff. So um, just for you listeners out there, we're going to be doing uh, what we think is a pretty cool educational series focusing on uh, various topics in the real estate industry. And we're really excited about these episodes, and we hope that they bring you know you and your uh, real estate endeavors uh, some really good information and uh, that you can learn from them and, and advance in your careers. So Today, we're going to talk about affordable housing, why we need it, how we get it done, the impact that it can have on communities and families. And to help us with this topic, we have today's guest, a vice president of community impact at Weller Development Company, Mark Brody. So let's bring Mark Brody onto the show. Mark, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me again. Really excited to be here. Yeah, you were on one of our first couple episodes uh, several months ago, and uh, we're psyched to have you back on. Absolutely. Word on the street. That was the best one. I don't, I don't That's know. what I've heard. That's what people have been saying. Congratulations. <laughs> we'll look to run it back here. Yeah. So, um, well, look, you know, this is a really important topic. So let's just dive right in. Uh, first, I want you guys to just frame your experience. Mark, I'm going to start with you. Um, I know you did this on the, the second episode that we recorded a while ago, but tell our listeners again, just a little bit about your background, especially with regards to, you know, affordable housing and real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Uh, well, basically, you know, first and foremost, growing up in West Baltimore, you know, a uh, single parent home and understanding the challenges of, you know, rent and, and, and mortgage assistance and, and just uh, the necessities of housing and how difficult it can be for some families. So that's kind of start with that. But also uh, my time uh, as an attorney working in Congress for Congressman Elijah Cummings on a lot of housing issues, uh, looking at things from a federal national level. Uh, affordable housing has always been uh, uh, something that folks look to try to solve for national level, state level, and local. Uh, and so it was something that I've, I've, I found uh, very interesting to work on, uh, something that Congress still is challenged uh, by. Uh, and we are here in Port Covington now, my role, uh, continue to, to do work locally to try to uh, uh, extend affordable housing to deserving residents of Baltimore and, and, and surrounding areas. Well, you're doing great work in Baltimore and in the region, and we'll get more into that in a minute uh, and, and follow up on that. But Steve, tell the, our listeners a little bit about your experience. I know you worked, uh, you've done a lot in public private. You've done a lot with massive mixed use projects, but you have a lot of experience in multifamily and affordable housing as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I've spent probably two thirds, maybe three quarters of my career, um, you know, in, in, uh, one way or another working on economic revitalization, economic policy, um, affordable housing, included and uh, spent time as vice president of acquisitions for a mid-Atlantic multifamily developer doing um, affordable housing deals using the federal program uh, that Mark mentioned, low-income housing tax credit program, and um, and then spent some time also in uh, Mayor Adrian Fenty's administration in Washington, D.C., where we um, implemented a f you know, fair number of, of uh, economic policies and, and, um, and the like, which led to the creation of, of – uh, a lot of affordable housing in the district. We also implemented what what is now known as the Housing Production Trust Fund, which takes a portion of the transfer recordation taxes that that flow into the city's general fund and directs them into the Housing Production Trust Fund. And that is what is used by the city uh, to fund the gap in financing some of these affordable housing projects. And that's really important 
in Washington. It's been very impactful. It's been very helpful. And, um, and, and it, it should be a model for other cities. There are other cities that have programs similar. Um, Baltimore implemented a, a similar program um, at, at my urging, frankly. And, and uh, you know, I think that that should serve the city well over the long term. Yeah, so you've obviously got incredible experience uh, in the D.C. market, and then you brought that experience up to Baltimore, and in particular in the Port Covington project. So obviously seeing a lot of that experience come to life now. Um, I want to follow up um, on on something that you mentioned, uh, funding the gap. And we'll talk about the basics of affordable housing. But what did you mean when you said that? Explain that. The federal program provides um, tax credits for the construction or preservation of affordable housing. And oftentimes market dynamics um, don't permit the ability to either develop from the ground up or buy existing multifamily and convert it into affordable housing, for example. The market value may be too high, for example, relative to the rents you're allowed to charge in an affordable project. So there ends up being uh, a gap, if you will, in the financing. There's just not enough money to, to buy it and renovate it and position it and then discount the rents to that affordable level. So there are state and federal programs that provide funding um, to fill that gap, but those are not always adequate and they're usually underfunded relative to the need for affordable housing. So, um, so the, the jurisdictions find themselves in a position where they have to create their own fund. They have to create their own mechanism to fill that gap and to um, be able to, you know, to, to bridge the gap in, in financing and, and deliver those units. So many uh, counties and, and cities um, and states have, you know, better circumstances than others in terms of tax revenues and, um, and property valuations and so on. And so those counties and cities and municipalities have an easier time where, you know, some of the, the cities that uh, have less resources, you know, have more struggle. And frankly, those cities are the ones that need the affordable housing the most. So it is a, a, you know, a big issue. It's a complex issue, but it, you know, it comes down to jurisdiction by jurisdiction. These, these um, uh, different municipalities have to, have to kind of figure it out. All right. Well, I want to follow back up on that in a second, but let's, let's kind of start from the beginning. Just generally speaking, someone's listening and they, they don't know much about affordable housing at all. What is affordable housing? How does it work? Why is it important? So um, I'd say, you know, if you look at the macro trend, the population growth in our country outstrips the um, inventory of housing in general. Uh, the new housing that's being built, multifamily housing, for example, is all class A. It's all, nobody's building, obviously, class B or C properties. Those, those inventories build only by the aging of newer properties. So, um, so there's really very little supply uh, relative to the demand of, um, of multifamily housing that's affordable, so to speak. And, and there is a nuance and a, and a difference between affordable and what we sometimes often refer to or hear about as workforce housing. Affordable housing as the federal government defines it and municipalities follow on and define it is based on the federal program that was passed over 30 years ago. Uh, and it's all governed by the internal revenue code, actually section 42 of the internal revenue code. 
Uh, if you're looking to fall asleep quickly, you can you can peruse that. <laughs> um, but but it is complex, and it is uh, the, the the section that really governs how these low income housing tax credits are administered and how they are treated from a tax perspective, and how uh, these these tax credit structures are are allowed to be formed and and uh, and so on. Um, and so that's the federal program, um, and what's referred to as affordable housing proper. Workforce housing is, you know, it is it is defined, but a less defined term. It is everything from uh, 60% of the area median income, often referred to, you might hear about AMI, these acronyms. The area median income is um, basically determined by, by HUD, Department of, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it is based on um, incomes in a certain metropolitan area, and, and is, that is well-defined, usually by county and city. They take these groups of counties and cities, or usually city with counties surrounding it, for example, and they define, uh, they use census data and income data and so on, and they figure out how much the average person makes, and then therefore they take, you know, 60%, for example, of that of that area median income and set that as the maximum income level that one person could pay or that a family of four could pay uh, to live in an affordable unit, you know, as defined. So, um, and there's, there's really two thresholds. 60% of area median income is, um, is one uh, election in the program and 50% of area median income is the other. And when I say election, you can either do, um, a, a development project, for example, that has 20% of the units set aside at 50% of the area median income, or you can do a project where uh, 40% of the units are set aside at 60% of the area median income. It's a sliding scale, essentially. Yeah, nobody, nobody really takes that election. Usually these, these deals are done where 100% of the property is, is at 60%, for example, of the area median income. Um, and the 80-20 deal, so to speak, where there's you know, only 20% of the units set aside like we did in Port Covington, those are, are very uncommon, but they are um, what I consider to be kind of the textbook definition of mixed income housing. And, and I think that is a really important uh, point and a really um, important way to do, you know, to execute affordable housing. That's great. And I think that's a good segue. I want to I want to ask Mark a follow up to that, you know, so you mentioned how it's being done in Port Covington, that's mixed income, you know, which has components of affordable. Talk about that, Mark Brody, and why that's significant and what impact that has on a, on a neighborhood or community. Yeah, absolutely. Just like Steve mentioned, you know, we have a 20 percent commitment out of the gate that 20 uh, percent of our residential units will be uh, affordable per uh, AMI. Um, and so when you look at Poverty rates and uh, generational uh, poverty, you know, uh, um, housing is such a, a critical factor in lifting people out of, of poverty. And that's, of course, stability in housing. And so when you uh, have units available, uh, you know, in and, and, and this uh, uh, volume, uh, you create opportunities for families in the region to uh, live amongst, uh, you know, safety and, uh, you know, new amenities, et cetera, that they wouldn't normally have access to. That new product, that class A product that Steve was talking about. So yep. you have an opportunity to have an affordable housing unit that's in a brand new building that's beautiful. And yep. it's it's in mixed in uh, with people who are paying full price for those units. And frankly, there's no distinguishable, 
distinguishable characteristics. They're the same units, correct? That's absolutely right. Yep. It won't be to tell the difference at all. And so there's, you know, not only are you providing opportunities in housing, but you're also restoring a bit of a sense of pride, it sounds like, and uh, autonomy to people to really give them a leg up. Absolutely. Um, in, yep. in the best possible neighborhood, in the newest neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, so that's really unique. Now, why, how did that settle in at Port Covington? I'll ask either of you, like, why was that something that, that we did? Yeah, well, I'll take that real quick. I know Steve has a lot more background than I do in this, but essentially from what I understand, this was a a community decision, right? We asked the community and we asked the elected officials, you know, what would work best for Baltimore? And that's the conclusion that we came to is that, you know, we would have a minimum of 12% on site uh, and a maximum of 8% off site. But of course, as I said, we took great uh, pains and trouble to make sure it's 20% uh, committed out of the gate, which I think is uh, is very, um, you know, something that we're really proud of. Yeah, and it's really important to mix incomes, mix people of different socioeconomic backgrounds together um, and, and to really bridge the divide in this country. I mean, we've seen this, you know, the, the lack of um, equality and social equity and, and so on. And um, having, having an opportunity to mix people of different incomes and different backgrounds together uh, in, a, in a single building is really part of the solution. Um, you know, oftentimes you see, uh, affordable housing projects that are built or preserved where a hundred percent of the units are set aside, for example, at 60% of area median income. That's fine. That's great. And we should do as much of that as we possibly can. But I think we also need to be, um, you know, really deliberate about, uh, um, you know, mixing people, like I said, of different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and um, and and doing it in a way that um, just like we're doing it in Port Covington, where you don't know the difference, you don't know somebody, your next door neighbor, how much money they make. It shouldn't be relevant. It doesn't matter. They're people, right? And and everybody should be treated equally. Everybody should be respected. Everybody should have an opportunity to live in clean, safe, uh, high quality housing. Um, and it it's, quali- it's a quality, it's a general quality of life issue. Yeah. Promote the general welfare, right? It's part of the, part of the, uh, the constitution. It's like, so, so let's, let's do that. And, you know, if we do that successfully and, and we, you know, although the, the, the affordable housing or low income housing tax credit program has been very successful, it's been the most successful program we have, it's inadequate. You know, it, it just hasn't done, um, what it needs to do. Obviously, there's so much demand and and so little supply, and it's a challenging issue um, because municipalities can really only do as much as they can do with respect to the the resources they have. And funding the gap that you talked about. Yeah, earlier. funding the gap, but also um, they don't control the market, right? They don't control uh, what a developer does on their private land. And so, so that's a. Let me interrupt you. So, like, I recently heard that. Uh, you know, Washington, D.C. committed to, you know, over 20,000 units of affordable housing or like as a goal. But that's really not up to them. It's up to private developers. Right. I mean, that's how can they even can they succeed with a goal like that or just talk about that for a second. Right. And and so, you know, if the city had hundreds or thousands of acres of land that they could put into productive use and go and put out onto the market and and have developers respond, for example, and and develop, then they could 
mandate that those sites are developed as affordable housing and, and they could directly impact or, you know, influence the outcome um, and generate affordable housing. And, and when I was in the Fenty administration and the, the city continues to do this, um, we required any public private deal where the city, uh, you know, put a solicitation out for a piece of land. The developers came in with their ideas of what they wanted to do with the land, how they wanted to develop it. The, the requirement was, um, for, for most of the term, anyway, 20% and towards the end, 30% of those units were set aside at 60% of area median income um, or, or less. And, uh, and so, you know, I know that that continues today in the city. Um, the more you, the more affordable housing a municipality requires, the bigger that gap gets. And so the municipality can say, hey, I'm going to make the land zero, right? You can't make the land lower than zero. You can make it zero. And that can help subsidize or offset that cost and that gap. But that only goes so far. Um, and they have to own the land in the first place. And they have to own the land in the first place, right. And so otherwise you're, you're faced with like imposing affordable housing requirements on land that's already privately owned. And that is incredibly controversial. Um, that would be impossible. Yeah, we, we, we um, worked on that in the city through an inclusionary zoning um, requirement where we required certain areas of the city uh, or put an overlay on certain areas of the city that required uh, a developer in order to achieve their maximum developable area or FAR, they had to uh, build affordable housing and, and then they were entitled to bonus density. And there was a, there was a lot of uh, consternation, a lot of pushback and, and controversy over that. So it's a, it's a really challenging, really challenging issue. Um, uh, there's a tremendous amount of funding that's, you know, coming out of the federal government now um, in the form of stimulus. And, and um, that, that's a great opportunity, I think, to, you know, provide gap funding and, and really bolster the affordable housing stock in our country. And, and hopefully that's, uh, that's done. Well, that's great information. Um, now, let's talk about how people actually access this affordable housing. How does that process work? Mark, I don't know if you want to talk to that first or Steve, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, if, if someone's in need of finding housing like this, how do they even become eligible to, to attain some of this? Absolutely. So there's a process, there's a waiting list right now, right? Like there's a waiting list. Um, as Steve spoke to earlier, there's a demand and the supply is only but X and the demand is Y and Y is much greater than X. And that's just a simple uh, calculation there. Um, but, um, you know, individuals receive vouchers from, in Baltimore, the Houses, Housing Authority of Baltimore City. There's a Baltimore Metropolitan Council. Uh, there's state programs as well. Individuals have to, you know, basically uh, provide um, information to certify that they are actually at a certain income level for a family of four, whatever the case may be. Uh, and then they can be placed uh, in line to receive affordable housing as it becomes available. Uh, of course, after a certain period of time, that uh, certification that you have um, uh, expires, you need to reapply because the government doesn't want people suddenly making a hundred grand um, and saying, "Hey, I'm still need affordable housing." Right? Uh, and so, um, there's a process. We're going to work with the city of Baltimore. We've already started that, uh, uh, well ahead of delivery of our first residential units that will be affordable. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's basically what the process is going to be. Great. So, um, Steve, I have a development question for you. So, let's assume you know you're. Um, at the helm of a project, it's a raw piece of land in, in a city. How do you determine if it's multifamily, if it's workforce housing, or if it's affordable housing? What's the decision-making set there, and how do you typically work through that? Are you asking if it's owned by the municipality? If it's owned by you. You've oh. got a piece of land, and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if 
you're a, a private merchant developer and you own a piece of land in a city, you're going to look to maximize the value, you know, uh, kind of um, just just putting a, you know, a capitalist hat on. Um, if there are requirements uh, in any given municipality to build a portion of those units as, you know, affordable, um, then obviously you would you would comply with that with that zoning requirement or policy requirement. Um, but generally, you know, you're going to evaluate the, uh, the site. You're going to look at the constraints. You're going to look at how much you can build on that site. The so zoning, obviously, if you, the zoning. If, if it has to be residential or has to be office, right. Or the use rights. Use. Yep. What kind of uses are allowed on that, on that site? Um, and you know, from there you can, you can have an architect, um, kind of mass out what you think, uh, the market demand will dictate um and and uh price it um and run you know financial models but basically you're you're looking at uh multiple factors you're looking at what your market rents are um what the cost of construction is what your debt financing costs look like and so on and putting those inputs into a financial model to to determine you know what the the best product type is you know what the use uh, uh should be um, depending on market forces at the time and, and the area, um, and, uh, determining, you know, feasibility from there and, and, you know, again, determining like the, the construction medium as well, right? Like whether it's wood frame or it's, um, it's steel, like aged steel or it's concrete and so on, how much parking you need. There's a lot of factors and considerations. So, you know, one of the things that we try and do on this podcast sometimes is explain things a little bit. Um, more simply for people who, who may be trying to learn. And, you know, we talked about AMI and, and what that means and talk about the word LIHTC. You hear that thrown around, talk about what that means and, and how that works. Yeah. LIHTC is just a really, uh, it's a, it's an acronym. It stands for low income housing tax credits. And that is, um, you know, those, those tax credits are, uh, are, are part of the um, sources of funding to build affordable housing. So there's really, there's really only, well, there's three sources, but one is the debt that is sized based on the net operating income of the property. Um, and these affordable programs will allow you to leverage the property pretty high. So you can cover the debt um, by only 10%. So mm-hmm. 110% or 1.10 coverage, 1.15 coverage. Um, and so you can source a fair amount of debt and, and the affordable programs um, typically have longer amortizations, 30, 40 years, um, and they, they have relatively low interest rates. So you can, you can really maximize the debt proceeds. The second source is the low income housing tax credit. Um, the, the tax credits are paid over a 10 year period. The compliance period is longer, um, but they are paid out over 10 years and they are based on uh, the, the the federal government just recently fixed them. They used to be based on an index. The four percent tax credit, for example, uh, is now pegged at four percent. So, uh, and 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 what that means is, it's basically you get in the form of federal tax credits, you get four percent of the eligible basis or cost of building the building mm-hmm. each year for ten years. So, if it costs, you know. $100 million to build a building, you get $4 million a year for 10 years. So you get $40 million from the federal government as a source of funding for that building. And what you'll do is you'll sell 
up front, you'll sell the right to that credit stream to a tax credit investor, which is usually a bank or a large institution that's looking to shelter profits. They will, um, they will buy them and they'll pay, they won't pay the full amount because there's a present value calculation done there, but they'll pay a discount, for example, to that. And they'll get that right to, um, to those tax credits over the following 10 years. Uh, and so you'll get a discount, you know, you might get 90 cents on the dollar, you know, depends on the market and the time and what have you, but that's, that's around where we are now. Um, so you might get of that 4 million, you get 3.6, uh, or 40 million rather, you get 36, um, over 10 years. So that 36 plus the debt plus, um, there's another kind of nuance, but there's a developer fee that's that's outsized in these deals because that's the only part of it that that the developer really gets a little bit of cash flow and they own the property obviously and get some money at the end perhaps but um, but those those sources those three sources are um, are the only sources available to build build the housing so if based on the market uh, and the cost of construction and the interest rates if you can size let's say you know, $50 million of debt and you can get $36 million of tax credit money on a hundred million dollar deal. Now you got 86, right? You're 14 short. So that's the gap. So it's, how do you fill that 14? Um, or maybe you can't cause that's a big, that's a big, that would be a pretty big gap, you know, an affordable deal. Uh, you might get, you know, you, 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 you would have, you know, it, it might, it just might not be feasible. And that's part of the problem is that you lose feasibility um, oftentimes in these deals and there's just not enough resources, not enough financial resources out there to bridge the gap. Um, and so that's, that, that, that should be the main focus, um, is how do you bridge that gap? Because you can't change interest rates. You can't change property values. That's free market action, right? Um, that dictates those. So, um, so really it just comes down to how do you finance, you know, how, how do you, how do you find that additional resource? And maybe the answer is it should be a 5% tax credit, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed, we've always had it at four. Um, well, it seems like there's definitely something missing. I mean, you're in the 0.01% of people who understand this stuff. You, you're obviously a wealth of, of knowledge on the, on the topic, but it's exceptionally complex. You've, you've talked about the, the funding gap. You know, it's an uphill battle from what Mark Brody said about, you know, shortages and waiting lists and things of that sort. I mean, do we have a national, is this a national crisis at this point? It is. Um, it is. There's, there's a huge housing, housing shortage or affordable housing shortage. There's a housing shortage in general. Um, and, and that's, you know, driving rents higher. Um, and we're seeing lots of trends that, and market forces that are pushing rents higher. Um, you know, everything from, um, you know, there's a phrase out there, renter by necessity. There are, um, you've got rising home prices uh, you've, that, that are double-digit rises um, over, you know, the past several years. You've got mortgage payments that are higher than rent payments. You've got down payments that need to be made if you want to buy a house. Savings rates have never been really lower, although people save money during COVID. It, it, is, it is nowhere near enough to afford the down payment on a home. Credit um, is, is a big factor. All the underwriting standards that were changed during the financial crisis remain today. So you have to put a big down payment down. You have to have strong credit. You have to have, uh, you know, the, the financial means to pay 
uh, your mortgage thereafter. Um, and then you have other trends like people starting families later, um, people choosing to uh, live in a maintenance-free housing option, right? You live in an apartment, you don't have to maintain any of it. You just, you have a landlord. You also have the ability to be transient. You know, the, the um, work from home dynamic and that shift has changed things as well. Um, people want to rent because they might want to be able to move quickly. They don't want to have to Or they may want to live in a cool place for six months or a yeah. year and then move to another cool place. Have the flexibility, right? And so, um, so a lot of those factors are uh, and then you have inflationary pressures, right? And a lot of those factors are driving rents up. And we're kind of seeing, you know, some of our fiscal policy over the past decade in this country, or even more than even longer, come home to roost at this point. You know, we've been printing money and 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 putting money into supply for years now. Um, and, you know, I think we're probably long overdue for this bout of inflation we're, we're experiencing right now. So, Mark, I want to pass it to you. Um, I, I always love hearing about your experience with uh, the great Elijah Cummings, who's such a tremendous leader and visionary for this country. And I want to hear just anything from your time with him as it pertains to this topic. Was this something that you guys worked on a lot and, and anything that you can share from those days? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, thanks for asking that question. He indeed was a, a great leader and a, a great mentor and someone to learn a lot from. Um, but he was only one of 435 members of Congress. And so while we worked on legislation and we put bills forward, this was certainly a high priority for him, especially being a uh, representative from the 7th District of Maryland, which comprises uh, most of Baltimore City, uh, where affordable housing is an issue, right? Um, you know, the supply and demand issue we talked about, high rents. Uh, you know, recently things have gone up with inflation, but they've always been high, right, for the past few decades and, and, and more. And so... Um, you know, there were a couple ways he could help, and then he did, you know, by putting forward legislation, trying to build a consensus among other members of Congress to help out. But it's an issue. Constantly advocating constantly day advocating. after day after day. Right. Going out, you know, going out to uh, inform the public, you know, um, having, uh, uh, you know, uh, forums where the public can come and get information and learn. And uh, that was really how he used his uh, power as a congressman to uh, try to push forward these issues. And also standing up for a city like Baltimore that has some deep-rooted issues, housing being one of them, you know, just his yeah. interest in helping those cities, like cities like Baltimore, advance, you know, yep. uh, I think it's intrinsic in that. So yeah. This is really an American problem, right? It's something that we have to get right because it's only going to get worse for us as we look at the labor shortages right now. I mean, we need people to have stable housing if we expect them to get an education, you know, become uh, employable and help us, you know, compete uh, globally. Uh, and really and so what's the last question, and then we'll wrap up, but really what's the the ramifications for cities, you know, if we don't get this right? Whether you're talking about Baltimore or Austin or San Francisco or, you know, anywhere, um, what's going to happen if we're, if we're not more active in this and changing the policy and we're just going to have extensive homelessness and – crime and, and things of that sort, or talk about what this could mean in 15, 20 years if we don't get going. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you foreclose the ability to have your, you know, for example, your entire workforce not be able to live in the jurisdiction in which they work and serve perhaps, you know, in the case of police officers and firefighters and teachers and, you know, um, healthcare workers and so on, all the people that we rely on, you know, to come help us and save us or, what have you, and teach us, um, you, you end up basically 
marginalizing their ability to eliminating really their ability to live in, in, in their jurisdiction. So, um, that's one, that's one issue. Um, you also, uh, you, you end up with an even bigger, um, you know, social equity divide, right. Or bigger socioeconomic divide. You, you, you end up with this gap in wealth, you know, where cities are only for wealthy people. Um, and even living close in only for wealthy people and the residents and citizens that have long been part of the community, an important part of the community, just as important as anybody else that's lived there for decades, for example, um, being displaced, you know, they have to now move out of their, where they grew up because they can't afford it. Um, and that, that just shouldn't be the case. You know, we should be able to figure out how we maintain, you know, the character of our cities um, from, you know, historically and from a, you know, socioeconomic perspective, we should, we should be able to, you know, to, to have the cities be for people. It shouldn't matter how much money you make. You should have the ability to live, um, you know, where, where you want and where you came from and where you grew up, for example. Absolutely. No, this is great information. And I think, uh, you know, our listeners will not only be moved by some of the commentary, but also have learned a lot. So, uh, thank you to your, to you both for for being here and and for uh, you know, sharing some of your wealth of knowledge on, on the topic. So, um, with that, we're gonna close the loop on this episode. What a what a great topic! And um, we thank you for for being here. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast adds some value to uh, your life or your career every time you listen. We're excited to be back in the studio with Mark Brody and our and our guest host, Steve Siegel, uh, for this educational series. And Steve will be back on the next couple as well as we talk more about the ins and outs of development. So, Steve, thanks for joining us and for being a co-host. Did you have fun? Thank you. Oh, this is amazing. Man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for this opportunity. And, Mark, thanks for being with us again. I'm sure yep. you're going to be a regular guest. We'll have you on again sometime soon. Looking forward to it. Thank you. We'd love to hear from the audience on any topics you want us to talk about, so feel free to hit us up on social media at Weller Development on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I'm Matt Rienzo, and he's Steve Siegel filling in for Mark Weller. Keep building, people.